Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome, Matt. Morning, everyone. Not maybe who you were expecting, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, always happy to be here and fill in for our intrepid leader while well, he's up and very, away. We're very lucky to have you. Oh, I think yes, you're yeah. dominating, uh, isn't it, FCW's Airways at the moment of all your series? Oh, that's right. Trying to clog all the content feeds with Remind bits about me. Remind me to autograph later. Oh, oh yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I'm absolutely. I've got, got the Sharpie at the desk. We'll sort that out for you later. <laughs> <laughs> so Everyone, your eyes aren't playing tricks uh, on you. Andrew is away today, but nevertheless, we do have a lot to share with you. So uh, I think we're going to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go right into it, Karen. I think, you know, big shoes to fill here for Andrew. So bear with me while I try to fill that role. A lot happening, obviously, every week, um, it seems, in the last couple of weeks in the employment law space. So a couple of things we wanted to cover off with you today. First, we're having a look at um, a new big case in the uh, federal court around the transfer of enterprise agreements. Mm-hmm. An example here that's changed the law a little bit in terms of where that applies. So Crown Sydney, obviously Crown itself, Crown Centre, big entity made up of lots of smaller legal entities, wanted to set up a new dealer for high rollers in uh, Sydney, had employees in Melbourne and in Perth that it wanted to transfer over to that now. Perth, Melbourne, both had separate enterprise agreements for their Crown Casino employees. So did Crown Casino in Sydney. So Crown said to the federal court, well, look, we want to bring these employees over, but we don't necessarily want to have a situation where we have three different enterprise agreements applying to three different sets of employees who are all largely doing the same thing. So prior to this case, the traditional thinking was, yeah, well, when you do that, the enterprise agreement comes across, so you've got to make this application to the court. The court said, well, actually, looking at this meaning of work in terms of this test about whether it's substantially the same sort of work, they said, look, we, you know, we think that uh, other courts and the Commission have previously looked at this and, and, and done it a little bit too broad. They've said, you know, look, it's work is not just this one simple thing about duties and so on. So they took a very different approach and said, well, actually, work for the purposes of this has many different uh, applications to it. It can include things such as location, it can include things such as uh, the duties and responsibilities, all of that all together. And they basically said instead, well, look, you know, what we've done is uh, said that work here for these individuals, although they're doing the same job that they were doing, they're doing it somewhere entirely different. They're doing it for someone entirely different, again, as their employer, different legal entity, and we're not satisfied that that's substantially the same or similar work. So Crown didn't need to carry over the enterprise agreement to Sydney-based employees who had previously been from Melbourne and from Perth. Mm, now that's really interesting, Matt. And I think I think it's an interesting case to um, to stay on top of. But having said that, in terms of how that might impact, in terms of I guess the majority of clients that we have is I don't know. It's probably not immediately relevant because I can think of clients who have an enterprise agreement and have multiple sites bound mm-hmm. um, or locations bound to that agreement. That's different because that's one entity, isn't it? Whereas you're talking about an organisation mm-hmm. where several different entities. Yeah, that's right, Karen. Yeah, look, the court was clear to make a distinction between that sort of example, which I think would occur for most of our clients here. Same entity, small changes in location, not going to have the same application as the tests that we've been given in this case here. 
Great. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, well, we've got some unfair dismissal. Yeah, well, I was just saying, look, if you've spoken to me over the last several months uh, for anything at FCW, you know that the anti-vaxxers and, uh, <laughs> and uh, vaccine mandate issues have been something that have been uh, bread and butter issues for me over the last couple of months. And look, at the moment, the decisions keep coming through uh, thick and fast. Now, really interesting one here, we had uh, several employees of a Catholic school claim in the Fair Work Commission that their employer should have consulted them under their enterprise agreements consultation provisions, so the ones you would have seen, obviously it's similar to those in awards, about the requirement to be vaccinated under the public health directions. And I think anyone who's had any letter of those form letters from any anti-vax employee over the last several months has seen this same sort of claim that, oh, you know, you can't impose this on me you need to consult with me first. We've heard it all over the place in every different type of industry and for every different level of employee. So they effectively made that argument before the Fair Work Commission here. And very helpfully, the Fair Work Commission have given us some good guidance about when these uh, public health directions, these pandemic orders, as we have here in Victoria, where they require something like this, and they come into existence, obviously, after the start of someone's employment. Well, what the Commission have said is, well, look, that's actually not a definite decision made by the employer. The employer really has no choice here. They're forced by law, effectively, to comply punishment of the threat of penalty and so on to comply with the public health directions. So it can't be said that it's a decision that they have made in respect of their employee's employment. And it's also not the sort of thing that triggers a major change in the programming or format of work as that's understood under the consultation provisions as well. So very helpfully here we've had the Commission say, well, look, notwithstanding that, you know, obviously talking to your employees and dealing with them when you're addressing these sort of the impacts of yep. the mandatory vaccination directions, notwithstanding that that's a really good idea and yes, obviously definitely. we've seen several clients have really great outcomes for their vaccine hesitant and anti-vax employees uh, in this space. What we've had is the Commission say, well, look, this doesn't trigger that consultation obligation. And that's a really big thing because yep. that was where, you know, I think we saw a lot of the arguments be made. But now confirmation really, you know, if these are imposed, they're imposed for a good reason, you're stuck with complying with them and that's not the employer's fault. Yeah, I think that's um, that's really encouraging to hear and I can imagine that elevating employers' confidence as well. So when it comes to the law, um, you don't have, employees don't have a choice when it comes to, well, they do actually, but uh, it's not a good idea not to comply. Oh, that's so, right. Okay, that's so right. I'll probably yeah. put that out. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. So in that case, that helps offset in terms of the need and um, I guess the, the level of consultation and I guess the decision around what change has to occur as a result of the direction or the law itself. It's really, um, yeah, I think it's a clarifying... Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, these public health orders, pandemic orders, they're going to continue to be released, I think, over the next several months. Who knows what those mandatory vaccination ones might become and look like. Obviously, we're having restrictions pulled away, but it's good to know now for the future that an employee won't be able to cause you as an employer more difficulty yeah. by relying on some purported lack of consultation <laughs> over something I'm that they never had to do. Words, well, I'm looking at selection of words. Always very sleek with my words oh, yes. if the anti-vaxxers can. <laughs> Keep sending them his way. All right. And look, a little bit of an interesting one here, again, 
if you've dealt with any sort of anti-vax or vaccine-hesitant employees over the last several months, you would have seen in some way, shape or form the form letters downloaded from the internet uh, that kind of go on about all sorts of various purported alleged legalities and illegalities about vaccination directions and mandates and so on. And obviously, you know, if you've spoken to me, we've said largely ignore those because they're a complete nonsense. But what we've seen is in two recent decisions is those anti-vaxxers and their representatives actually take those questions to the Fair Work Commission, asking the president of the Fair Work Commission effectively to get a full bench to answer those questions because those employees claimed that the answer to these questions was necessary before their general protections claims could be dealt with. Now, the Commission dismissed both these decisions. The President of the Commission dismissed them on the basis of technicalities around the fact that because they were general protections claims, the Fair Work Commission itself couldn't actually make a decision mm -hmm. about that. That was a matter for the courts and not for them. But I think these decisions stand out as the, a really good evidence about how you know, look, if you're dealing with these individuals, they don't know the law, they don't think rationally, unfortunately, about what they're asking to do, and they'll even ask, you know, the single most important person in the in the commission to have a think about these questions for them. But, look, just a good note to have to say, look, it's not going to stop them from doing it even if they get knocked back by someone as senior as the president of the commission himself. Well, it sounds like the commission have been most generous with their time oh, with these absolutely, matters. Absolutely, absolutely, All righty. So uh, that's the, the cases for this week? Yes, yes. yep. All right, this week we're going to talk about returning back to travel, or should I say it's already returned, um, Matt. We're seeing people back at the office. We're seeing increased level of travel in terms of, you know, hopping on a plane or mm -hmm. driving off to, to go visit clients and really that in-person interaction has um, climbed up quite steadily over recent weeks. So, look, on the one hand, that's fantastic. That's exciting. Oh, I absolutely. think overall yeah, um, that's yeah. a positive um, mm -hmm. move and I'm certainly personally very much enjoying that. Oh, I think we all are, yeah. Having said that, though, what that does invite is questions around uh, how, what risk does that create, particularly mm -hmm. now that we're still very much operating that COVID environment mm -hmm. and, um what is it that we need to do to better support our employees so that they are safe um, and other people working within the environments that we can influence or control remain safe as well? So, Matt, I want to throw over to you to yeah. talk about, look, generally, when, we come, when, it talk, when we're talking about travel and work and COVID together, what are the laws that are relevant here and where do the, the problems come from? Yeah, well, look, I think one of the main problems, and obviously we've spoken about this before in several different contexts, but in the context of this work travel and all the excitement that exists from people being out and about again, living life large in this kind of, you know, COVID normal world is there isn't one single legal rule that tells us where work finishes and where home starts or where work time ends and where free time starts. And what that means is that when we're addressing these questions and assessing the risks for our employees, We've got to be aware of and balance lots of different competing sources of legal obligations that sometimes when applied to the same single fact scenario can result in very different different outcomes. So I think, look, there's, there's four sort of main ones. There's your OH&S um, obligations, of course, providing a safe working environment for your employees. Now, that obviously has a big part to play in terms of work travel and where employees are on planes and in cars and doing those things, going to different places, something we've always just got to be aware of and make sure we're putting reasonable controls in place. And 
not extending that further than is absolutely necessary, but keeping in mind that employees will be out and about a little bit more and yeah. making them aware of what their obligations will be. You've obviously got your workers' compensation perspective on this as well. You know, where that injury arises, is it out of the in or out of the course of employment? Well, the answer to that is yes, if the employer has induced or encouraged the employee to be at that place. So that could be very relevant for your employees who are, you know, if you've got your Melbourne-based employees flying up to Sydney for the first time and going out for drinks, say, with the Sydney office afterwards, you know, is that something they've been induced or encouraged to be at where they're all excited and, and living life large again? Something to be very, very aware of. I think it's an of. area, the workers' comp, Matt, is an area that's not well understood. No, I think that's very fair, Karen. I mean, look, you know, there are lots of examples in the cases where sometimes behaviours and conduct that have occurred that seem to have a tangential connection to employment uh, actually are found to be arising out of, out of or in the course of employment. So, you know, very infamous examples you would have heard of just talk about before, obviously, the, the ComCare case with the individual who took someone back to their hotel room and was had the light tubing fall on them while they were in the bed. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> obviously a very clear example of where that doesn't apply. But, you know, in others, say, you know, we've got two employees, you know, you know sharing a hotel room and they get into a fight. Well, they're there at your inducement or encouragement. Does that apply? So, look, lots of factors to be mm. cognizant of and I think caution in terms of the workers' comp is Absolutely. really important, which I know you'll speak about in a moment, Karen. The real other two areas, obviously, unfair dismissal. Um, you know, can that misconduct outside of work hours warrant the termination of employment? Well, yes, it absolutely can, where it's, you know, entirely inconsistent with their duties and roles as an, as an employee, you know, where it's inconsistent with the terms of their employment contract and where it has the potential for some sort of reputational damage as well. We would have seen that recently in the Qantas decision, which was the sexual harassment example where, you know, that first part of the conduct, although it was outside of the timing of that particular event and it was into the later post-event for the drinks that were being held, that was satisfactory to warrant serious misconduct, his conduct that occurred there because of that kind of reputational aspect, because of that inconsistency with the duties as an employee. The last one I think that sometimes is not really well thought about as well, which I put very similarly to the workers' comp one, Karen, is the discrimination law risk in terms of your vicarious liability as an employer for the discriminatory conduct and acts of your employee, a much broader test that applies under there to simply be effectively in connection with mm. the employment. And what that basically says is, well, look, if you don't take reasonable steps to prevent discriminatory conduct occurring in your workplace, sex discrimination, sexual harassment, really prominent ones, for example, if that behaviour manifests itself in outside-of-work conduct so that it can be seen to be a continuation of or an extension of that conduct, notwithstanding that it might have happened, you know, hours or days after being at work, for example, you can be found to be vicariously liable for that conduct. You know, a very infamous example involved a woman who was you know, repeatedly sexually harassed in the workplace, um, subject to derogatory terms, unwanted advances, um, for sexual conduct with no action effectively taken by the employer at all, you know, unfortunately was invited and induced effectively by other employees to come to a party with the individual who was the sexual harasser. And then unfortunately a rape occurred in that circumstance and the court said, well, look, you know, that is a continuation and extension of that conduct that 
manifested itself in the workplace and knew the employer should be vicariously liable for it, notwithstanding that it happened at, you know, 6am in the morning at the home of another employee. So I think that legal context is really important, Karen. Yeah, no, thanks for taking us through that, Matt. And as you can see, everyone, it is like the circumstances really do matter in terms of so many different elements that we do need to consider, which can make, I guess, confuse employees, if not really worry employees. But look, practically, what is it that we can do? I want to jump over to a slide now. To help you think about this further, a couple of questions that you can take away and have a think around your risk preparedness when it comes to work travel um, at this point in time. Now, you haven't heard me use this terminology before, but I do say it with my clients. I love that, well, I often hear, uh, if, if you don't have a policy in place or you don't know what your policy is, you're not sure whether it's up to date, you're pretty much operating by the policy that I call the she'll be right policy, okay? <laughs> so... That policy pretty much, well, it means that, you know, everything should be okay um, as it is. Now, let me tell you, that's fine until you arrive at a situation where you're potentially in trouble, okay? So when it comes to work-related travel, if you don't have clear guidance and policies around what those expectations and rules are, you need to ask yourself, well, in absence of that, what practices and behaviours are we permitting as an organisation, Okay. I'm not going to go through this 14 questions there for you, but you really need to think about, one, the rules and policies is one part in terms of what you have. You need to also refer to historically what incidents and issues, whether an incident actually occurred, what kind of feedback or suggestions have you received from your workforce in the past around work travel or those events and interactions away from work. Now, couple this with the COVID situation in terms of maintaining COVID protocols, not even just for your workplace, but the places that you're going to, considering that there's going to be really crowded, densely populated venues that your employees will need to, to work through as well. We're talking about public settings like the airport, Matt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of environments you need to consider. Now, the point is here is not to stress you out thinking, well, we can't control everything. That's not the point. But have you considered and is there anything that we can do practically to make sure that people are well aware um, and they're as safe as they possibly can be so that, and that we're supporting them. So, look, hopefully that's um, really useful to you and uh, that should be, I think Sophie's going to help send that out. If not, it'll be downloadable somewhere. All right, we're going to move on to case study. Ah, uh, yes, the case study, your favourite part, Karen, as I know, from oh, watching Andrew tease you with these. <laughs> well, look, as that, I understand we've received some feedback over the last couple of weeks, so thank you so much for, um, for sending that through, but, um, particularly around your user experience with the survey. We are going to do it a little bit differently today in that rather than the survey um, asking you a question one at a time, we are going to do it, load up the three questions so you could answer it um, all at once. We will give you a little bit of extra time so you can work through that. Okay, so here I go reading. Let's see how tricky it is this week, eh? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah to your All right. <laughs> Heidi was an IT manager for Bat Shop Crazy Bargains, VSCB. She worked mainly from home, although nearly all her team had returned to the office. The CEO had made it clear she expected 50% attendance at work and Heidi had resisted, quoting health concerns and an armful of conspiracy theories. Instead of having meetings at work with her team, Heidi arranged off-site catch-ups. Her team was increasingly frustrated by having to travel to cafes near where she lived to meet. Her boss, Andrew, arranged a meeting at work to discuss the staff's concerns. Heidi declined the meeting, saying she had a cold and was reluctant to attend and make people sick. Andrew sent a virtual meeting request instead, which Heidi accepted. In the meeting, Andrew told Heidi that Giorgio, 
Did I get that right? Yeah, Georgiou. I'm Georgiou. not sure. Georgiou. Oh, Georgiou. Oh, I think let's go Georgiou. Yeah. Ah, Georgiou. I think you're right. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> One of her team members had raised concerns on behalf of the team. Andrew had checked with the rest of the team to confirm the issues raised and they had all agreed. Andrew told Heidi there were to be no more meetings out of the office and she was expected to attend work the following week. After the meeting, Heidi arranged drinks at the city for her team between 6pm and 8pm. They all reluctantly agreed to attend. After drinks were over, Heidi invited Georgiou to come out for further drinks to chat. Georgiou always liked Heidi. In fact, he had a crush on her, so he happily accepted. They drank for too long and at 1am, Heidi just exploded. She called Georgiou a traitor and a liar and then started to kick and punch him. That's a bit odd, but anyway. Georgiou fell from his chair, hitting his head on the concrete floor and knocking himself out. He went on to suffer severe memory and cognitive function issues for three months after. Well, that was a pretty dramatic turn. Yeah, dramatic. No, well drafted by Andrew, of course, given that level of drama. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to wait for the, uh, the questions to load. And then after that, you're going to take us through each one. And yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, so as Karen said, just a little bit different this time, giving you that opportunity to kind of answer all three of the questions and then we'll go through it all at once rather than one at a time. So, yeah, but I know I'll take on, I'll put uh, the Andrew going through the case study responses hat on, but I thought you did very well with uh, going through his oh, little so much, language yeah. curveballs in there, Karen. I'm always cheering you on from home and watching these myself thinking, oh, I'd be just dangerous. You know, as I, said, <laughs> as I say to you all the time, you know, you know what, I just make everyone look better. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Okay, it's come through. So, look, do you want to take this? Yeah, absolutely, Karen, yeah. So, look, did Heidi commit an act of serious misconduct warranting summary dismissal? Well, look, absolutely. Number one, the physical assault of uh, another person, assault, one of the clear categories of uh, serious misconduct under the definition of serious misconduct. And the question here, of course, well, look, was it something that occurred in that sort of out-of-work hours conduct that could be sheeted home to the individual, given the way that the kind of events transpired, the um, invites to the drinks, the further invite post-drinks to Georgiou, where he was then assaulted, absolutely, you know, can be connected to the employment, notwithstanding that there might not have been that apparent immediate reputational impact from that assaulting another employee in circumstances where you've invited that other employee to be a part of it with you, that definitely goes home and says that's inconsistent with your duties as an employee. So, yes, yep, yes, the clear answer there. On to the next question. Wonderful. So, yes, so Georgiou felt he could never return to work with Heidi. He brought an adverse action claim. Would it be successful? So, look, I mean, interesting here, yes, is again the answer. Can you um, talk about where... On what basis? Yeah, yeah. So, look, obviously the, uh, you know, the adverse action itself here, uh, a little bit extreme, the physical <laughs> assault of someone, certainly not the traditional types of adverse action. But the key thing in this fact scenario that leads us to this conclusion is it's that Heidi was aware of Georgiou's role as the kind of spokesperson for the various complaints or inquiries about his employment and his fellow employees' employment and the role that Heidi played in that. Now, Heidi invites all of the employees after work to those drinks for the purposes of talking about those issues, then specifically again invites Georgiou out to that further drink, again for the purposes of talking about these issues. So 
because she's effectively said, well, the whole reason I've had you here is to talk about something that relates to a complaint or inquiry that you've made about your employment. Absolutely. The fact that as a result of Georgiou making that complaint or inquiry about his employment, I've physically attacked you and pushed you to the floor. That's uh, where we say the adverse action comes into play. And then that could be sheeted home to the employer simply because of that kind of extension of that work environment to talk about work things. Mm. Yeah. Good. Could Georgia make a successful workers' compensation claim even though the incident occurred five hours after the official function and ended? Well, look, again, yes, being the answer to this question. So for all the reasons that we've just discussed in respect of the uh, serious misconduct and in respect of the general protections claim, Heidi's actions here have effectively extended the work environment, okay? It's although there may have been a social element and social aspect to the drinks in both occasions, she, as a management level of employee, has induced or encouraged Georgia in particular to come with her through these two events post the work hours to talk about work things. You know, at the end of the day, that's the key part. This was not some sort of you know, simple extension, although he was infatuated with her, as the uh, mm. case study explained. We have no information here about her reciprocated feelings mm. in that respect. So we can't assume that it was a purely kind of personal uh, meeting between the two, a date or something of that nature. We know from the fact scenario that she specifically organised it because she wanted to chat about the complaints or inquiries that he had made. He's induced or encouraged to be there and then suffered that catastrophic injury. Uh, injury. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And look, I think based on the response from the audience today as well, you guys are all over it because um, you clearly can detect that as well. So that's that's fantastic because it is it can be very confusing because there's so many different dimensions and elements to it, Matt. Um, Absolutely. So thanks for taking us through that. No, no worries. All right. Now, in terms of wrapping up all this week, now we have received some uh, some feedback around people being able to join the Friday Workplace briefing each week because um, the way that it's working now. It requires you to register for each week. So what we've done here is Sophie's dropping in the comments section link. If you click on that now, that will register you for next week. There we go. And then that will be done and dusted. And all you need to do next week will be to turn up. Again, massive thanks to the person who we can't identify because we don't know who you are except for being a LinkedIn user around the feedback around the polling. So look, feedback is always definitely welcome and it helps us uh, create an easier, friendlier, better experience for you all. So please keep that coming. It's always very helpful. But look, next week, Matt, we are expecting Andrew back. Having said that, I think he flies back in on Thursday yes, night. Yes, so it might be me again, so he might be stuck with me two weeks in a row. <laughs> the, the double header, we'll see how we go. No, yeah. no, we're very lucky to, to have you and yeah, your ability to parachute in and uh, take <laughs> over is excellent. So with that, oh, you can't see, I cannot see anything in the comments for some reason. Sophie, for whatever reason, oh, we okay. can't We'll see get Sophie to follow up on that yeah. um, for everyone because, yeah, their understanding is certainly the comments should be popping up, so we'll get yeah. them to check. Yep. Excellent. All right. Thanks, everyone. We're wrapping up for the week. Uh, enjoy your weekend and see you again next week. Thank you again. Uh, thanks again, Matt. No, no worries. Thanks, Karen. Bye, right. everyone. Bye, everyone.